Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler, hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Before we get started, and very excited about tonight, uh, we have American film and television director, screenwriter, television producer Jeremy Kagan uh, is standing by. He's been with us before uh, to talk about a, a near-death experience. We'll touch on that as well. Uh, but we're also going to talk about his new feature film starring Noah Wiley. It's called Shot. And uh, it's, well, the log line is very provo- provocative. One bullet, three lives, everyone pays. We'll talk about that. But Jeremy also uh, was the man who directed uh, a very famous uh, film uh, for those of us in the uh, who dabble in the uh, uh, the UFO community or the the UFO uh, area, and that is Roswell, the UFO conspiracy, and um, that, that movie came out about almost 25 years ago, I think, 1994. Okay, 23 years. We'll touch on that uh, as well. But I also want to talk to Jeremy because growing up, my all-time favorite uh, television show was Columbo, and as a very young man. Uh, Jeremy actually directed an episode of Columbo and got to know Peter Falk on another project. We'll talk about that. Just a programming note, Ian uh, Robertson, my fine rockabilly friend, uh, is here, of course, behind the glass. Albert Vinzel, my story producer, and Ryan White, our feature producer, they're off tonight taking a a much-deserved rest. We'll be back actually in a couple weeks, and then we'll resume our uh, our live YouTube stream. So there's no live YouTube stream tonight uh, or next week, but the following week. We'll be back uh, with, of course, our weekly remote viewing experiment, what's in the box, and uh, and all of that. Okay, uh, as I mentioned, uh, Jeremy Kagan is uh, an American film television director, screenwriter, story um, uh, television producer. His uh, feature film credits include the box office hit Heroes, uh, The Big Fix. I remember that uh, with Richard Dreyfuss, another favorite of mine. And, of course, The Journey of Nadi, Nadi Gan. Who could forget that? Uh, back in 1985, that was the first American movie ever to win the gold prize at the Moscow International uh, Film Festival. Um, as I say, he's also been a prolific television director starting in 1972 at the age of 26 my gosh, 26, I was still wetting the bed. Uh, he directed The Most Crucial Game, starring Peter Falk, Robert Culp, Valerie Harper, Dean Stockwell, among others. And then, as I said, an episode in the second Columbo season. Uh, he also won a Primetime Emmy Award for Outstanding Directing for a Drama Series for Chicago Hope. Uh, that was the episode Leave of Absence. And uh, he's also um, directed uh, episodes of The West Wing, uh, Picket Fences, Boomtown, and more. I, I could go on and on. What a resume. What a career. Jeremy Kagan, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm so glad to be here right now. Well, let's, uh, there's so much to talk about, but let's dive right in and talk about the, the latest project, uh, Shot, sure. and yeah. um, uh, starring Noah Wiley. Um, who else is in this? Uh, Sharon Leo, who's real, well known for Dream Girls. Uh, she's in a new television show right now. Um, and a new young boy named uh, George Lindbergh Jr., uh, who actually has a part in Spider-Man and is also now the star of another Marvel comic that's being shot at this very moment. Um, so those are our three leads. And we have some actually quite well-known actors from lots of movies that we've all seen, like uh, Xander Berkeley, who's been in literally hundreds of movies that we've loved, and Elaine Hendricks. Um, so Malcolm, Jamal, Malcolm Jamal Malcolm Jamal Warrior. Yeah, Malcolm Absolutely. Jamal. Yeah. 
lots of people sort of joined in because the movie really deals with one of the subjects that I think we're all troubled by. Um, and sometimes it puts us on the opposite sides of the fence, which unfortunately is unnecessary. And the, what we're troubled by is the epidemic of gun violence in our society. I mean, as we're talking within this hour, so many people actually will be shot, some of them killed, and some of them even children every seven minutes. We're talking about 90 people shot every single day and killed, and almost 300 every single day going to hospitals. And this compared to any other civilized nation across the world, we are exponentially so much more violent with our guns and homicides and suicides. And it's just so troubling for all of us. And even those of us who may be gun owners, and even, even those who are members of the National Rifle Association, NRA, also are extremely troubled by this. And we've reached a point in which um, I think we all need to get together and say, okay, look, we're not going to take guns away from anybody. That's not what this is about. What it is about is those people who have guns should be people who are responsible. Those who are people who aren't shouldn't have access to guns. Guns shouldn't be sold illegally. Guns can even be made more safe. But all that sort of was the stimulus to make this movie. And what I realized was, and I've shot lots of guns, and particularly lots of guns in movies. Uh, the MEI one, the opening sequence, a character gets shot. The very first television show I ever did called Nichols with uh, James Garner opened up with somebody getting shot. But the thing is that in all these stories, we never stay with the experience of the person who gets shot. Right. And I realized we always cut away from it in movies. You know, somebody gets shot and maybe they'll go to the hospital and they'll cut to the scene or something else, but you won't stay with them. And I sort of felt, you know, I need to know what that's like. So I called some of my colleagues. I'm a professor at the University of Southern California, and I spent time in emergency rooms and spent time with people who got shot. And it was there from the moment they got there. So oftentimes they won't went in the operation. And I realized this is an incredible, intense experience. It's like a roller coaster ride with lots of drama every second. And I said, you know, maybe if we made a movie in which we meet some people we care about really early on and then in this case, accidentally, one of them gets shot. And then we stayed with the entire experience for what's known in the medical profession as the golden hour. Meaning if you survive that hour, you might live. Now, how you live is another question. The golden hour. So I thought, huh. The yeah. golden hour. So I thought, what if we just did that? What if we gave this visceral roller coaster ride from the minute our character gets shot? To never leave them. Stay, in this case, it's a estranged husband and wife, to just stay with them waiting the one he's down on the ground on the street for six minutes because it takes a while for ambulance and police to get to you, even in, in our society where they get fairly fast. And then that internal ride in the ambulance where you're in pain and it's fear and anguish and confusion and you don't know what's going to happen, but we never cut away. We stay with them. And when they arrive in the hospital, we stay with them for the next 40 minutes. But I also wanted to tell the story of the shooter. And so in a multiple screen way, we also tell at the same time, in real time, what happens to the shooter. In this case, it's a 16-year-old kid who's being bullied, who gets a gun from the cousin uh, in order to sort of, quote, protect himself. And as he's just looking at how the thing works, it goes off. And now he's been inadvertently a criminal and doesn't want to get caught. And so we tell his story as well. And the, the log line is um, one bullet, three lives. Uh, everyone yep. pays. So you mentioned, obviously, the, the shooting victim. 
uh, right. and, his wife, and his and his wife. So the, the wife is being is the is the third. Yes, uh, the third. But you know, story. it's interesting. We could, you know, we, we could actually we, we we title that and actually say say you know one bullet many lives because you could think about it the ripple effect of one bullet. I mean, yes, immediately in these three lives, but think about the families of everybody in this case, the family and the mother and brother of the kid who was the shooter. You know, all the people that are in the, the emergency medical teams that arrive in the ambulance, the police, all the people who are in the hospitals, and how this affects each one of their lives as they deal with people who are getting shot. Right. And so it's this ripple effect, and, and it's, you know, it affects you and me. Here's the weird part about it. You know, every one of us pays, and, and by the way, literally pays. It costs around $20,000 a day when a gunshot wound victim arrives in the hospital, and many of these people don't have that money. And so you and I are paying for it in terms of just the way we support our society in terms of taxes. And it's literally billions of dollars a year are spent on gunshot wound victims. We're all paying for it, even if we don't even know anybody. Jeremy Kagan is with us, uh, film director. The, the new His new film is called Shot, uh, starring Noah Wiley, Sharon Leal, Aline uh, Hendricks. Uh, we mentioned uh, Malcolm Jamal Warner, uh, many others. And when is this uh, in, in theaters, Jeremy? It opens in New York City um, and in Los Angeles on September 22nd. And then in the next weeks, it'll open up in a number of cities, cities actually that are dealing with these issues, like Chicago and New Orleans, uh, Washington, D.C., uh, Philadelphia, um, Detroit, um, because we I'm hoping that the movie generates more conversation. Actually, you know what the truth is, Richard? You know, I've been working on this movie for, for seven years. We started actually making it around two years ago. And about five weeks ago, as we've been going through the process of you know, beginning to spread the word about the film, and those of you in the audience know about independent films and how difficult it is for them to even get any attention. Oh, yes. But I realized what I wanted that, this film to do, Richard. I like this movie, and I know this is a big ambition. I like this movie to save a life. If one person sees this movie and decides not to use a gun on himself, on a family member, on a friend, on a stranger, whatever, just decides for some reason, you know, this is pretty horrific, I, I don't want to do this, then I will know this movie has actually done a good deed. I pray that happens too, Jeremy. Uh, that would be quite a legacy. Uh, the thing <laughs> is, as with, with all noble acts, you'll never know, probably, exactly. whether that happens. Exactly. Exactly. There's an old saying from the tradition I come with, which is if you save one soul, that is one body, it's as if you've saved a complete world. And I hope that, that the movie is part of that conversation so that we all, and as I said, I'm not talking about giving guns back. I'm not talking about people should be fearful that guns being taken away. Look, there's so many guns in this country, almost 300 million of them. Well, people are not going to take away people's guns, and that's not the issue. We just want to be more responsible about who gets them and how they're used. Right. We're heading into a break, Jeremy, but I wanted to ask you, we'll start this conversation now, continue it after the break. You know, on a, on a Sunday morning, there, um, one of the things that my kids and I enjoy doing is uh, before my wife and I watch the Sunday news programs, the magazine shows, Sunday morning and so forth, on one of the channels, the old series The Rifleman comes on with Chuck Connors. And my mm-hmm. kids, they're kind of, you know, we've kind of raised them for an appreciation of vintage things, and they love old TV shows. So, And we enjoy The Rifleman. It has a wonderful morals and values in the story but of course you know guns obviously play a central role but you know when when people are shot in that that series you don't see blood 
So I'm, yep. I'm just wondering, I mean, I'm, you must have taken a, a great deal of, of, of time and uh, thought into thinking about how, you, how you're going to portray this single, blood, this single um, bullet wound, this single gunshot, because obviously you, you want to show it in how you know, ugly and damaging and all of these things. How did you approach that? Well, actually, I spoke to the people who had been shot. I spoke to a lot of people who were um, medical sort of specialists and what it's like. And, you know, it depends on the individual. I mean, somebody can get shot in the foot and, 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 and go down in absolute pain and agony because of the, 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 the adrenaline system of, of dealing with shock turns off everything. And so you just fall and, you know, suddenly you're, you're numb. Other people can be shot repeatedly and, in fact, not even really notice it because of their particular, you know, physical and chemical makeup. What I was interested particularly, though, was the issue of, you know, a small bullet, a 9 millimeter bullet is very, very small. And unlike, you know, in fact, the opening of this movie, there's a sequence that our hero happens to work as a sound professional, and he works on doing sound effects in movies. Ah. And he's adding sound effects into one of these movies with lots of blood and lots of gunshots. And when he gets shot, the bullet, as often as two, is really small. Not that much blood. But what happens to a bullet when it enters a body, if it hits something, it can shatter right. and can do incredible damage that you wouldn't visually see. So, you know, the, it, it, the issue of this thing traveling so fast out of that muzzle and making it a small little hole, but that little hole can mean the, your life is, in fact, over or changed forever. Now, I, I don't want to give too much away, but uh, just very quickly, do, do you take us in, do, do the cameras take us inside to show the trajectory of the bullet once it enters the body? No, no, we don't. What we do is something else, though. We, we decided to, you know, when we're looking at movies and television shows, usually we have what's called an, an objective camera. It means there's a camera there watching stuff, and that's the way we see most shows. And every now and then we'll see a close-up of somebody, and we'll see what that somebody sees. Who the point of view? i got to jump in here, Jeremy. I apologize. Yeah, we'll, we'll take a time out, come back. Jeremy Kagan sure. is with us, director, screenwriter, producer, and the new movie, Shot. One bullet, three lives, everyone pays. Back with more. Stay with us. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. My guest is Jeremy Kagan, American film director, producer, screenwriter. Uh, we're talking about his uh, latest film. It's called Shot. One bullet, three lives, everyone pays, uh, starring Nola Wiley. And uh, earlier I was asking about how you approach uh, the actual uh, sequence in which the individual, uh, Nola Wiley's character, is is shot. Um, and... Um, Anyway, let's. I'm not sure if we finished that uh, that off or not. You want you were talking about how well, you approach this, yeah? Yeah. What well, what we wanted to do because we wanted you, me, the viewer, to actually go through the vicarious experience, so that it was like, what if this happened to us? So instead of watching it with an objective camera, the minute our character gets shot, which is in the first five minutes of the movie, we change point of view, and all we get to see from then on for the next hour is we see what they see, but we never have this sort of objective camera. We only see what they see. So it's as if we were having this happen to us, like in, like in a virtual reality right, experience. Right, right. That's what you're seeing. 
Um, now, we see a multiple screen because we also see what's happening to the young 17-year-old kid who gets shot, who was the shooter. But from the point of view of the person who gets shot, we only see what he sees and also, in this case, also what his wife sees. Um, at the end of the hour, we fade out and we come back five months later to see where these characters are and see how their lives have been changed and see what happens when they, in fact, we experience each other. Jeremy, how does how do you... What are your feelings on, you know, you're making a movie in Hollywood or trying to, as an independent producer, uh, trying to address the gun culture. Uh, and you're surrounded, obviously, by, you know, production houses that are churning out movies that are all about, you know, almost celebrating or not celebrating necessarily in every case, but certainly in a way celebrating the gun culture and, and romanticizing gun culture. How, do, how does that make you feel? Well... I have a feeling that it was probably one of the motivations for me wanting to make this movie because I've been one of those people over the years, you know, having guns in movies and getting people shot. As I said, you know, I've I've done this as well. Um, And there's a part of me that as I, I, you know, I I was literally thinking about this a little earlier today. You remember the Virginia Tech experience back in 2007? Yes. That that young man who was mentally, um, disturbed, was able to get a gun, which he wouldn't have gotten a gun if we'd had stronger um, background checks, um, and killed all those people, wounded them. And I was in that uh, city. I was just about 10 miles away from the university at the time working on another project. I think it really sort of hit me. And I'm feeling it was, and I just realized this just, just in the last hours, the kind of motivation of, okay, I've been part of Hollywood. Whoops, we're losing you, Jeremy. Uh, sorry. Oh, sorry. Okay. I, I, I've been part of Hollywood. I've, you know, won an Emmy um, where someone got shot. And I, I, I kind of said, I need to deal with this myself. We need, as storytellers in Hollywood, to take responsibility for potentially keeping the myth of the gun as the final good solution alive. We, so I wanted to make something that, uh, you know, took on that subject, took on Hollywood as well. And by the way, it's taken this long to get made because Hollywood didn't want to make this. Right, right. It must have been a battle. Um, how much of your motivation, your decision to make this movie uh, sprang out of your near-death experience? I, I think the one part of the movie definitely sprang out of that. Um, and that is that I realized when I was in the sort of middle of this through death, near death experience, that I was, although I didn't exist anymore, but my consciousness exists, connected to everybody. And that sense of the fact that we're all sort of one unit, even though we're in our own individual personalities and experiences, that sense of being totally connected to everything means that when there's harm done to someone, that harm in a way is being done to you or to me. And I sense that during that experience. And I also sense that we're in a kind of school here. When I was a kid, I don't know if you remember this, but there used to be a poster, and it was a poster of the cosmos. 
Yes. There was an arrow that pointed to one star, and then an arrow way down at the bottom of the poster pointing into another. And then there was a text that was pointing to the one star, and it said, you are here. <laughs> and then yes. to the one down at the bottom, it said, and all the good stuff is here. And here we are on this planet, this incredibly beautiful planet. And I feel like we're in a school. We're sort of like on a, and, and, and a lot of us, including me, get sent back remedial education because mm-hmm. we don't get it. We don't get that we're all connected. We don't get that we're responsible for the beauty of this planet and the health of the planet. We get into what can I get for myself? Right. And listen, when you go through your death, guess what? You don't get to get anything for yourself. It's all gone. When I was going through my near-death experience, the first things that I was realizing was, first of all, my body was gone. I couldn't see. I couldn't hear. I couldn't feel anything. I couldn't breathe. I was no longer in a body. We should explain, uh, Jeremy, that this happened. You you had attended a a sweat lodge ceremony? Yes. Yeah, I was... um, day before my birthday, and um, I had been doing um, this work, it's kind of men's group work at the time, well, this was actually a co-ed sweat lodge, um, and it's Native American work, although sweat lodges are part of cultures all around the world and have been for thousands of years. I don't particularly like them, by the way, because I don't like to be that hot. No, I'm the but, same with you. I, I don't like saunas. No. Oh, boy, not me either, boy, but, but there's something about it when you do it. One of the things is because you, there, you speak in the darkness, and when you're that hot, and you're that sweaty, and you're that uncomfortable, it's really difficult to lie. <laughs> you, you just, you know, i got to tell you the truth of what's going on. So when you're saying prayers for yourself, you're saying what you really want, even if it's yourself, and prayers for others, what you really want from them. But what would happen in my case was that... Um, it was very cold outside. It was the wintertime in the, in the Malibu Mountains. And, of course, the, hot, the, the sweat lodge is incredibly hot. And I, if, in a medical terms, uh, had a, an attack of, if you will, hypothermia. And you can die from that. Uh, you know, I, I have a feeling that it was something that lasted a very short time. But in my experience, it lasted forever. Uh, but the gain of the insight about you lose everything, there's nothing you hold on to. You know, not only was all my body functions gone, but I, I thought at first, oh, they're going to take me to a hospital, but I can't see, I can't hear, and I can't feel anything, and that's not changing. So I'll be in this hospital, and, you know, my relatives, my my, my child, my, my they will, and I won't be able to see them or communicate. They won't be able to communicate. All my relationships are gone. And then that was the precursor to the realization and the fact that I actually was dying. But my point is that all the stuff that we want for ourselves, I want this for me. In the end, you're not going to have any of it. But what you will have, and this was the great gift of this experience, you will still be conscious. That doesn't end. And that consciousness is universal. It's what connects all of us. We're all a piece of that consciousness. And when you're in that space, it is the most blissful, supremely um, inspirational, uh, awesome, and serene, and perfect. And you realize that's who we really are. 
And when when the darkness opened up and you could see while you were still having this experience, what, what did you see? My journey took me in a classic way um, through... Um, you know, I, had, I didn't know anything about this, but of course, subsequent experience. I read, met people, and you know, got associated with lots of people who were in near death associations, etc. Um, my experience led me um, on a classic sort of journey, in which almost it's like it was like a ride, and I, I'm on it, and it's taking me wherever it's taking me. But I'm in an absolute, total acceptance even a blissful ease with whatever's been happening. And I did see beings to my left and right as I was sort of moving on this cloud that uh, sort of ride, um, and they were, I think, images of past relatives. I didn't have what some people have, which were verbal communications. I didn't get that, but there was sort of a visual communication, like an acknowledgement. And then there was this, this opening to what I would say is a star field, as if you know um, my essence was going to go back to stardust from which we all come. But there was then this very unique experience in which, for many people, it's known as the past life. But in this case, it was not my past life alone. It was like the past life of the entire human existence that everything that any human being had done, had created, had been, all of this was suddenly being presented to me as if I was part of creation itself. And I was experiencing it all instantaneously, particularly that of creation of us as the human species. And I experienced that. And it realized that I was, if you will, at one with it, like an observer, but also as the participant as well. All history was within me. W- was there a life review? Not mine personally. Not yours. Um, in the sense that I didn't get the, the you know all the things I did. I didn't go through that one. I got all the things humanity has done. All the creations, all the art, all the music, all the wars, all the violence, all the goodness, all of it sort of like was sort of painted out in front of me or exploded out in front of me. Wow, that must sort of like the ultimate philosophical, historical, theological lesson, all within a millisecond. Oh my! That reminds me, as you're telling me this, of uh, the um, the Star Trek: The Motion Picture, the the first one in '79, where Spock gets this download from the Voyager, which they call V'ger. Do you remember that scene? Yes, yes, yeah. yes. I mean, is it, is, it, is it anything like that? I think there's similarity in the sense of I was. You know, it, it's in a way like, you know, they say you never forget every, anything, but of course I forget everything. Um, or like like our hard drive has all the memories of everything we've ever put into it. It's as if you opened up the hard drive and everything spilled out at once. And you got everything that was, all, you know, all every image, every word, all just at the same time came out. You know, I just realized as I'm saying something, there is a story about Revelation. Um, and the story is actually about the revelation of what is called the Torah, the, you know, the Old Testament to the Jewish people. Right. And the story is that when they were at the foot of Mount Sinai, where this is supposed to have happened, that the entire Torah, all five you know, sections of all the 600,000 words, they all got it in a millisecond. 
Mm. Not in sequence like we get life, not linearly, but like as an explosion. And that was a similar experience here as an explosion. Now, I do want to say that when, and I was not, I didn't have the the issue of someone saying, as some people do in near near death experiences, where someone says, it's not time for you to be here. As I was, after this explosion, entering the star field, it was almost as if you took a, a motion picture and made it go in reverse. Yes. And, and it rushed down at incredible speed, sort of taking me from star field past the planets, back into the Earth, back into you know where the U.S. is, back into the uh, mountains of Malibu, back into this body that I saw on the ground. And I came sort of rushing in and started to slow down as I entered back in this body. That body was me. And then I started in that body to begin to hear a little bit, to begin to see a little bit, to begin to to sense some movement. And I kind of moved around like a little baby. I couldn't get all fours. I couldn't sort of get any. Were you angry that you were back? No. I was in absolute ecstasy. Oh. Ecstasy. Interesting. None, and this is what I want to say, was that when I sort of gained back the sort of physicality and consciousness of the particular you know, being that I'm in right now, this Jeremy, um, I looked around, there were still people there, and I felt so much love for everything and everybody, okay. and so much delight. Jeremy, I've got to take a time out. We'll come back. We'll uh, pick up on that point and uh, talk about your days directing Columbo, the Roswell movie, and much more. Jeremy Kagan, the new movie is shot. Due out in theaters later in September. We'll give you more details. The Conspiracy Show comes back right after this. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. We are back with Jeremy Kagan, American film director, screenwriter, producer. The new movie is Shot, and that stars Noah Wiley. Again, give us the details when it opens, Jeremy. It opens in New York City and in Los Angeles on September 22nd, and it will be opening in about five or six theaters, cities um, uh, in the following weeks. So that will include Detroit and Philadelphia and Chicago, Washington, D.C., and New Orleans, and probably Portland as well. Um, so it will be a, as a rolling opening, as we say, but it specifically is in here in New York City and in Los Angeles on September 22nd. All right. I want to take you back to uh, the early days. Here you are, uh, 26 years old, and you're directing people like Peter Falk and, and uh, Robert Culp. Uh, later you would direct an episode of, uh, I guess it was the second season of Columbo. What was that like? I mean, you must... Must have been kind of intimidating. I mean, Peter Falk at that time, I mean, he was the highest paid man on television. It, it was intimidating. It was my second show. And when I first came out to Los Angeles from New York City, I had not the intention of becoming a Hollywood director. I mean, I admired, obviously, the genius of, of Hollywood and American movies, but I was much more interested in how movies get used for educational purposes. That's just where my brain was at the time. Um, but because of a number of uh, incidents that happened at the American Film Institute where I was, I got you know, an opportunity to, in fact, direct a, an episode of a television show with James Garner. The second one was uh, to direct Columbo. Now, I had been working with crews of about four people. And all of a sudden, I'm walking into crews where there are like 60 people. 
Um, and, you know, 26 is somewhat young. Not, I mean, let's face it, Dorson Wells at 25, didn't mm-hmm. listen to Kane, but, you know, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I'm still young compared to a lot of people that are there on the set. But uh, I, I sort of over-prepare, and I think over-preparation for almost anything in life is an appropriate way to uh, approach um, whatever challenges you are and have. And so I was extremely well prepared in terms of knowing what I thought these particular moments in the scenes needed to be. And I'd been studying film at both NYU graduate school and at the American Film Institute, so I knew my skills. I was still new at it, but I still knew them. But I remember the case with Peter Falk. Now, about a week before I got this particular opportunity to direct at Colombo, I had gone to a uh, with some friends to a, um, um, a uh, restaurant bar, and I, I'd had a little more to um, imbibe than making normal. And I saw Peter Falk, and I'd seen recently the John Cassavetes film Husbands. Yes, and I thought Peter Falk was stupendous in this. So I kind of bumbled over to his table. He was eating alone, and I kind of with a little bit of slur in my voice, gave him some compliments, and I realized I was interrupting and being a little bit probably invasive, and I pulled back. Then a week later, I get this job. <laughs> and I'm thinking, is he going to remember he's going to see this director? Because he didn't hire me. I was hired by Universal Studios. Is he going to look at that's that kid who was irritating me while I was having my cheeseburger? I'm getting real, real nervous. So I get to meet him, and it turns out that his assistant was best friends with the, my girlfriend at the time, and they'd said spectacular things about me. So Peter was so interested. You've been accepted by the family. Uh-huh. I'd, even, I'd even met Casavetes because of the, the best girlfriend at the time, who um, also worked for John. So I sort of like was in, and he didn't remember that evening. Oh, thank Lord, thank God. Okay, I'm going to stop you there, Jeremy. I'm going to stop you there because we're going to take a time out. When we come back, uh, yes, this is um, this is an interesting uh, aspect of the whole Columbo saga because, uh, uh, as I said, you were dealing with, I believe at the time, the highest paid person in television uh, back in the early 70s. And here you are, 26, um, trying to uh, coax Peter Falk out of his trailer. We'll discuss on the other side. Jeremy Kagan. American film director, screenwriter, producer. The new movie is called Shot. More of our conversation on the other side. Stay with us. Question everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And we are back with uh, Jeremy Kagan. We're talking about Columbo. And uh, you directed uh, him in in the second season. And this is in the uh, the early 70s. Am I right? He was the highest paid performer in television I, at that time? I, he may very well have been, but I certainly didn't pay much attention to those things. And what happened was at one time, Peter um, suddenly was not coming out of his trailer. And I thought, well, what's the problem? And I didn't know the problem was he wanted more money for the following episodes and he wasn't going to work unless he actually was going to get these deals. And so, you know, it was was typical sort of business-related Hollywood stuff. But I'm this kid, not so much a kid, but I'm this young man wanting to really do a good job. Um, And so 
my actor isn't coming out of his, his trailer. <laughs> so I go over and knock, and everybody's like, don't bother me. You know, there's a big deal. It's the studios. And, go. and I knock on the trailer and said, Peter, is everything okay? And he looks at me, and he realizes, I have no idea what it's all about, that all I care about is making as good a little movie as I can. And he suddenly starts to smile, so I'll come out, Jeremy. And so he came out, and of course, we continued to do the work. Uh, because, you know, I wasn't even in the game that he was playing, which was, you know, the power struggles with the studio. Right, and he thought... In enough of you, obviously, or just not enough of you, but just uh, he was being a human being, saying, "Why do I? Why do I need to drag this poor kid through this mess?" It, exactly. I think mean, it's, it's precisely that. Um, and what a talent! I mean, just uh, you know, he's he's he was a very very good uh, graphic artist. And while we were working, he did a, a sketch of me, which he then gave to me a pencil sketch. Um, and I feel very fortunate to have been able to work with uh, you know people like that in the early part of my career, um, because you know some of these. What's interesting though is when you know what it is that you want, and you're clear about ways to get it. Those people who have a lot more experience with you and then you often respect you because they get you're clear about what you want and how you want to get it, and they will then join in in the process. And, you know, I've worked with Sophia Loren and, 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 and Rod Steiger and George C. Scott, and these are giants. Right, um, right. And, you know, who have far more experience than I did when I was working with them. But all of them, I think, appreciated that my intentions were, uh, I think, worthy. And therefore, okay, I'm going to go along and work together with this person. I want to just a quick aside because you mentioned Rod Steiger, and here's a, a an actor that could just you know eat the scenery. Uh, how do you how did you approach handling an actor like Rod Steiger? I mean, he, to me, he just seemed on screen, and even in interviews I'd seen off screen, so intimidating. Uh, I mean. How do you tell Rod Steiger maybe that perform maybe that scene you were a little over the top? Can you tone it down or how do you do that? Well, it was interesting in Rod's case. Um, I met him. This is a movie called The Chosen from a very famous book by uh, Chaim Potok, a wonderful story about fathers and sons. And I met Rod because he was associated with the project before I was asked to direct it. And I met him, and you know, I was a little worried. I was still a relatively new young director. And, you know, I know he'd done things that we uh, just, you know, hats off to great performances like in, in, in On the Waterfront. And, and I also knew that, you know, he had cases where, as you said, there seemed to be way broader than he would have liked. Um, and when we sat down together, he had an opinion about the character. And when I said, I understand what you're saying, but this is where I'm coming from. And when he heard how much I knew about where this character came from, he listened because he realized that I'd thought this through. Because there were some parallels in your, in your, in your own life, were there not? There were to some degree, yes. I mean, in this particular case, um, uh, the character sort of was an amalgam of my own father. Um, um, but, there, but, but I also had done the research and the homework. And there was a wonderful moment when I told him he's playing a, a leader of a community, a 
small, various, they're called Hasidim. It's a very uh, ethnically um, uh, separate, uh, very specific kind of group of people um, with the specific uh, you know, rituals, etc. Um, and one of them has to do with you, the way that these particular people pray. And I told him a story, and because he could listen so well, he got it. And it was a story about somebody who was supposed to be incredibly active, but didn't do anything. And then when the young man said, go up and touch him, and the young man that he was saying just went up and touched the guy, he said, he's covered in sweat. He said, yeah, because it's from the inside. Oh, <laughs> And Rod got it and realized his performance needed to come from the inside, not being histrionic on the outside. Right. And as I said, Rod was a great actor because Rod listens. Fascinating. I want to take you back to uh, 1994 and um, the movie Roswell, Kyle MacLachlan, Martin Sheen, Dwight Yoakam, interesting um, casting choice. Uh, Xander Berkeley, who is, of course, also in, in your new movie, Shot, Charles Hallahan. Um, how did you get involved in that project? Were you, uh, were you a, were you, are you a believer in the sort of the unofficial story of what happened at Roswell in 1947? Um, I didn't know anything about it until about a year before we actually made the movie. One of my colleagues from the American Film Institute, Paul Davids, who I think you know, yes. mm-hmm. Paul and I met at a party for one of our teachers, and Paul told me the experience that that he had had um, and with his children and how he'd gotten totally involved in the UFO world. And I don't think he actually even knew it, knew at the time what UFO stood for. Interesting, interesting. And when he told me the story, I happened to be uh, in business with the head of HBO, and I told him the story, and uh, that began the whole Roswell uh, experience for the two of us. Inevitably, Showtime made it. But what became very, very clear to me at one moment, and this is this is sort of pre my uh, own near death experience. It was the clarity of there is not one universe. There are multi-universes. Hmm. And, you know, astrophysicists over the last 15, 20 years have been speaking to this, and mathematics have been proving it, and, you know, obviously string theory has its own relationship to this as well. But what became a shockingly clear idea was that this is not the only sort of space, if you will. And the interception of these universes is something that is happening all the time. And what became clear to me was that the idea of the physicality of the UFO experience versus the reality of the UFO experience is where you have this kind of strange blend because I am convinced there is, if you will, inter-universal communication. How it manifests, whether it manifests absolutely physical or whether that's our brains trying to understand how it manifests is, in fact, something up for the discussion. Um, there are times, I must admit, when uh, after reading all the stuff that I've read and meeting all the people, 
that I feel like every now and then some of the people who are in power in our world are actually reptilians. <laughs> <laughs> they really scare, they scare me deeply, and their values seem to be so twisted. But at the same time, you know, that physical evidence, I mean, I believe that Jesse Marcel believed what he saw and touched, and that when he held that piece of the metal or whatever it was, and then he crinkled it and it then sprung back into its same form, I believe that Jesse had that experience. Can anybody else have that experience? Uh, that's that's a challenge. Could we see it? You know, uh, I, I that's where I'm undecided, and that's one of the reasons why Roswell is the story, the Rashomon story that we told, because you know there's constant um, uh, sort of, um, ways you can look at. But I think what's most important is for us to understand that we are not alone, not alone in terms of our own little egos in relationship to everybody around us on this planet, and not alone in terms of consciousness itself, which is way beyond this planet. I think it's also a very a human story, too, because of what Jesse Marcel, who was a very honorable man, very. Uh, and who had to suffer the slings and the arrows... Uh, for all of those years, after he finally came out and talked about it, and then before when when he felt he was forced to stand behind this dubious cover story. So uh, it's really heartrending when you think about what, all that he went through, and then even his son. Yeah. Um, in fact, uh, you know, we, 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 we spoke with his son. Of course, we spoke with those people who, you know, tell various aspects of this story. Um and yes, I think it was extremely uh, difficult and challenging because, you know, you so, everybody's looking at you as a fool. And you're being called a fool 24 hours after the United States government has said we, we discovered, uh, you know, the remains of a of the UFO and, the, oh, no, not true. And uh, embarrassing him uh, publicly and internationally. What a tough space to live in. Um, but, uh, I mean, I admire the fact that he had the courage to say, look, I'm not going to continue to tell a lie. I am going to be a whistleblower on this. And, you know, I'm quite convinced that there are levels of communication that we are not being told about. I don't want to go get too conspiracy about this, but there's a sense to me that, you know, there's information and then there's more information. Um, and I, I feel that that level um, is still being you know, withheld. But what's phenomenal about our times is it's really difficult these days to keep secrets. So um, you know, I feel that we're going to be sharing more. You know, I, I just about a week ago, I got lost from driving in the, in the Southwest, and I came upon the very large array. I, I don't know if you've ever been there. It's called the VLA. No, and these I are giant, giant SETI devices. I right. mean, they're you know they're they're, they're monstrous, and yes. they're all in a V formation, and they're there, and they're recording information and pulling it in, and it's ongoing as you and I speak. Isn't that interesting? Of all the places to get lost and you find yourself uh, <laughs> right there by this array of SETI uh, receivers, sat satellite you receivers. Got you got it. Somebody's trying to tell you something, Jeremy. I think so. <laughs> I think I'm constantly being reminded. But, you know, we get, we get so involved in our own stuff, you know, in our, our kind of you know, daily survival. 
and sort of forget. I remember, I think uh, Ram Dass, this wonderful spiritual teacher, once said, you know, we're all walking around in spaces. Each one of these spaces is our own personality. And every now and then we realize we're in the spaces. Who we really are is not the spaces. And every now and then you'll look at somebody or talk to somebody and you realize they got it too. They realize they're sort of in their spaces. And we also you go like it and he says, are you in there? I'm in here. How did you get in there? And it's like that line you hear from people who really sort of have greater wisdom than I, who often say, we are spiritual beings inside bodies. Indeed. The question is, what awakens that spiritual being that we truly are? Jeremy, thank you so much for this. I appreciate the hour. I've enjoyed it immensely. I thank you for allowing me to share it with you. Jeremy Kagan, shot, and again opens September the 22nd in major cities around the North America, then wider release later. When we come back, Rosemary Ellen Guiley for the full hour. Stay with us.